And God says, you know, don't invalidate yourself. Do not say that you were just a youth. Instead, he says, I have put my word in your mouth. You will go, you will speak it where I tell you to speak it, and so forth. And so Jeremiah sets out on this call to follow God to speak God's word. And so periodically through the book of Jeremiah, we come upon these places like Jeremiah 18, verse 1, where it says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So, you know, as you think about Jeremiah, you know, it takes me back to uh, um, the way that I've been learning uh, increasingly to follow God. And uh, the old way that I followed God was to try to make stuff happen. You know, I, I had this big idea that I was going to be God's minister. I felt like God had his call on my life. A bunch of people told me the same thing. God has his call on your life. So I kind of got, you know, uh, trained and raised the way I was. You know, when you do for God, you go out and you, you accomplish things for God. So that left me fairly angry at the end of the first 10 years of my ministry, right? Um, and, and as I began to realize that I couldn't keep going in that way, and I began to search, search the scripture and, and look toward the Lord for, you know, Lord, how do we follow? Uh, I found God bringing me back to John 5, 19 to 20. And it's a passage I've quoted to a number of you. Who's heard me quote John 5, 19 to 20? Okay. Yeah, who else? Three. Who else? Well, so what, what we just proved is that none of you are listening to me anyway. Because I know I quoted it to you here, right? But having said that, no condemnation. I'm not sure I listened to me that, that long either. Whatever. Um, but, but just for the sake of recap, John 5, 19 to 20, when we talk about how do you follow God, Jesus makes it actually fairly easy because he puts a lot of the weight Like, if God wants to do stuff in this world, he has to pick people to do it through. And if he picks people that aren't that bright, or people that are thick, or people that are otherwise dysfunctional, then it's up to him to compensate for it. Which means, just like Isaiah, the call of Isaiah, in Jer or the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah says, God, you picked the wrong guy. Who else did we, did we hear say that? Moses said that. God, you picked the wrong guy. And God says, I know who I picked. And you're coming with me, and you're going to say what I tell you to say, and you're going to do what I tell you to do. Oh, by the way, you're going to see me work. And that, that was pretty crazy. So anyway, this is what Jesus did. Jesus comes to earth. God says, um, you are my son, uh, and you're going to do what I told you. You're going to say what I told you to say. And so that's what Jesus actually said. The way you follow the Heavenly Father is you spend a little bit of time with him, whatever that time is, and you wait upon him. You read his word. You get to know him through his word. And then it says, the Son does nothing of his own initiative. He only uh, does what he sees the Father doing. And the Father loves the Son and shows him everything. And that was what we're about to do. So this is John 5, 19 to 20. Let's quote it together. Um, <clears throat> the Son does nothing of his own initiative. The Son does nothing of his own initiative. He only does what he sees the Father doing. The Father loves the Son. And the Father loves the Son. And shows him everything. And shows him everything. So this is the way Jesus followed his Heavenly Father, right? He spent time with the Heavenly Father. You know, and so some of us, you know, we think, yeah, I'm not Jesus, right? I'm not Jeremiah. Actually, you know, at the end of James, it's interesting because at the end of James, in, in James chapter 5, uh, there's another uh, statement, and it talks about. 
So Elijah was the guy, you know, that burnt down the huge altar on Mount Carmel and defeated all the prophets of Baal. Elijah, it says, we sometimes might take Elijah, okay, you know, he's pretty sensitive to the Holy Spirit, all that kind of stuff. It actually says Elijah was a man just like you are. And it means human, just like you are human. So ladies, Elijah was a human, just like you are, right? In other words, he didn't have any special abilities. God called him and used him. And so the scripture there says that Elijah, his prayers are just like your prayers. The kind of prayers Elijah prayed, the kind of prayers you can pray. And he says, the prayers prayed by a person like Elijah. Now what was Elijah? You know, if you think about Elijah, the story is told about right after uh, Elijah's great victory on Mount, on, on Mount Carmel. Uh, he had a bit of a crash after that. Who here has ever gone to something amazing and then you had a crash afterwards? Okay, so if you talk to any pastor going, right, you'll find out that right after Sunday everybody crashes. <laughs> and I always wonder, why do we always take Monday off? That's the wrong day to take off because that's your crash day. You know, uh, there's, there's, when, you, when you invest yourself and you go hard and you put out hugely like we do on Sunday, oftentimes there's a crash afterwards. Well, Elijah had that. He put out incredibly, the Holy Spirit moved hugely and powerfully, changed all kinds of things, brought the people of Israel back to repentance all through him on one day on that mountainside. He comes off the mountainside, Queen Jezebel says, far be it from me to leave you alive tomorrow. I'm going to do to you what you did to those prophets. Elijah runs away. He finally stops in the wilderness when he, when he figures he finally gets far enough away to be a little bit safe. And he says, okay, Lord, I'm done. That, I, I've got up with this. I can't do this anymore. Take me home. Kill me. And God doesn't kill him. God instead feeds him and takes him into the next part of his call. You know, so when we think about some of these people, the Jeremiah's, we think about the Elijah's, we think about, uh, you know, uh, some of these amazing people of God, God didn't choose the perfect ones. He didn't choose the highly gifted ones. He, he chose who he chose. And so maybe, you know, you think about yourself. I, I certainly think about myself. Uh, I, don't, I think I'm fairly thick. You know, and I, I like to hear God from you, and I do hear God. And then something happens, and you know, I, God gives me a message from my wife said that to me the other day. She said, you know, you who don't think God speaks to you very much, he sure speaks to others through you. Interesting point. I had a guy talking to me just a week ago, and he was exactly that. He says, I don't know what's wrong with my relationship with God. God doesn't talk to me anymore. This guy's working on my house back in Saskatoon. So I sent him a painting yesterday for the work he was doing. And he refused the painting, and he sent back to me a message and in the message, he said, God told me not to charge you. And so I, I'm thinking, that is, that, that's, a, that's a massive blessing to me, right? But the other thing that stood out for me beyond the massive blessing that it was for me is the fact that he heard God talk to him. So I sent him back a message. For a guy who doesn't hear God, you hear pretty good because you just told me God talks. God can get through to us. God can speak to us. And sometimes God speaks to us great things and wonderful things, and sometimes he speaks to us hard things. And I want to say to you that a lot of the times when we struggle to follow God, it's because God isn't saying to us 
children. So we go back to Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. And the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, so God spoke to Jeremiah, and this is how it went for Jeremiah, as he walked along and did the ministry God called him, periodically God would speak to him and give him a word. Well, the word of the Lord was this, come and go down to the potter's house, and there I will, I will let you hear my words. This is so cool. One of the things I like to do in preaching oftentimes or in sharing, I like to use object lessons or I like to use illustrations. I don't always use good illustrations, but I like to use them. God used an illustration. God knew apparently Jeremiah and a bunch of these people were visual people. And so he said, I want you to come down to the potter's house because I'm going to give you an object lesson. And so we went down there. And, and as he went into the potter's house, Jeremiah said, there he was working in his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to him. Who here has ever done pottery on a wheel? Who here has ever seen it? So when you throw a piece of clay onto the wheel, and you get that wheel going at speed, uh, the centrifugal forces and all that kind of stuff allow you to apply pressure to that clay and mold it. You get what I'm saying? And if you don't know what you're doing, or if you make a mistake, sometimes you press a little too hard, and it tears the vessel, or tears the thing that you're making, and it's, and it's ruined. And so this is what happened with this potter. He ruined the thing, so he crushed it all back together, and he cast it back onto the wheel again when he made it. He reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. That's what a potter does. When you're working with the clay, you don't expect the clay to stand up and say, uh, I want you to, to make me into this, correct? Most potters would not do that. You know, uh, I don't know, Gordon, you were a carpenter once upon a time, right? You didn't stand in front of the house, the house you were building and say, well, how would you like me to make it? We didn't. At least I didn't. Instead, we decide how that house will be made. And so it is with the potter. And in that comparison, is made in God himself. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, but if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intend to bring on it. And in another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good I intend to do. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. So God comes and he says, I am going to make you into what I want to make you. God is the one with the agenda. And so again, you know, as we think about following the Lord, this is where it becomes important to us. Uh, are we willing to follow God's agenda? Or are we going to go in the selfish way and decide what we will be and what we will become and all that kind of stuff? You know, it's been interesting for me. I've been honestly speaking a little bit depressed about the church lately. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. The North American church, maybe. Because I've been watching in the news a little bit about guys that fall here and guys that fall there. Now, one of the 
is on the hunt for Christian leaders. So, you know, on one level, a lot of these people that are, that are struggling uh, or that are, that are under, the, under pressure from our society right now, they could be hidden away and they might be left or right in the society's eyes. But there are, there are definitely uh, crooked church leaders being forced to the surface. You know, and they are the ones gathering all the attention. Um, and so it's like, wow, like, Lord, like, what, what do we do? What do we do? Well, the message, the message of this is that even when we fail, you know, sometimes God has called us to follow Him, and we fail. I listened to one church leader here a little while ago, and he said, you know what? He said, God gave me a gift. And he said, I was so totally in love with Jesus at the beginning of my ministry. He said it was wonderful, but he said I gradually got caught up in the stresses, and I got caught up in the money, and then I got caught up in the politics, and he says I've sort of lost my connection with God. And he says, you know what I miss right now? I miss my connection with God. And the indication that he gave was that he was taking time to go and seek that connection again. You know, again, as we look at this image here, he talks about this, this potter, about God who is that heavenly potter, who takes us and forms us, and sometimes things fall apart. But God can take who we are, and he can take us in our failings, and he can take us in our, our mistakes, and he can reform something good out of what has happened to us. The, the theme, or the, the, the word that we have for that is called redemption. That God takes what is evil. God takes what has become selfish. God takes what has lost its focus in us. And he calls us back to serve him. And, and so really, you know, as we come down to this passage. Um, we're faced with a choice. God says at one moment. I, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intend to bring. This is called repentance. How God comes to nations, you know, and as we look at God's call, God's call is upon nations. God's call is upon tribal groups. God's call is upon families. God, God's call is upon individuals. God's call is on congregations here, Emmanuel, for instance. God's call is on the Christian church here in Parkland County. Many different groups of, of Christian believers meeting this morning, wherever they are. God's call is all, also on each one of us. And so this call, call applies to each of us. And there's a choice there. And he says, every time that you have turned to evil, he says, if you repent and turn back, I will restore you. Jeremiah 15, verse 19. There are times when we turn to the selfishness. There are times when we lose our focus and, it be, and, and, and everything becomes all about us and what we can get in life. And, and when that goes far enough, the selfishness involved can become a driving evil force. You know, I've been watching the news a lot. Peter's been watching the news about Russia and Ukraine. You know, when you think about Russia and Ukraine, some of the leaders, right? Like, I, I used to do uh, preaching in Saskatoon in a Ukrainian immigrant church, Fairmont Baptist Church. I was the Luther Baptist Hostel 
took some real effort for them not to divide along racial lines, but to continue to look at the people, right? Because, you know, we talk about the Russians, and what do we think? Well, we think about stuff like the Nazis and the communists and this big dehumanized block of people that all had this singular intention. I remember talking in this area during, over at Newbury School one time, Cheryl Dawes invited me to do a talk, and I remember talking about the Nazis and Russia is one of those nations doing evil, you know, as we look at it. Russia's leadership is one of those leadership groups of a nation doing evil. And this says, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intend to bring on them. <laughs> Means God will actually bring disaster on nations if they commit themselves to an evil way. And yet always throughout history, there have been So, you know, we want to always, as we read this, you know, we want to be careful. Don't, don't just, we, we still need to look at the individuals, right? But we also have to know that there are times when nations, when groups of people embark on an evil course, God will destroy that group of people, as said. It says, if they repent, if they turn back, I will change my something and you were quite dedicated to that selfishness and that evil. And you got to the point where you felt, you know what, it's too late for me. And I've talked to many people that have got to that point. And one of the things I've learned over the years, because I've dealt with my own weaknesses over the years, I've learned that it's never too late. It's never too late. I don't care how dedicated to evil you became in your life. It is never too late. God's call upon us is driven by his love for us. If you will repent, I will restore you. I will change my mind about what I intended to do to you. Because God never gets any joy from punishing. God never gets any joy from destroying. In fact, the only thing as we look at the passages in Scripture where God destroyed nations or destroyed people, we always see the same thing. God only destroys when everything is beyond hope and when the evil is so purely, how do you put it? When people became so evil that there is, as the scripture says, you know, the thought and intent of every man's heart was utterly and purely evil all the time. As long as there's a chance for us to turn, God reaches out for us. But there are consequences to our actions. And he calls us. And then the question becomes, are we willing? Because
because that entails choice. Well, anyway, so that's Jeremiah 18, uh, 1 to 11. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and know, and know me. Search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before it lives on my tongue. O Lord, you know it completely. You have me in, behind and before, and your hand is upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. I try to count them, but they are more than the sand. I come to the end, and I am still with you. You know, as we listen to Psalm 139, so you know, we think about the, the evil on this earth. We think about the So when we think about that kind of stuff, now we shift it to the person. And Psalm 139 speaks about that person, and it speaks about the relationship that we have with God. And it says, O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. And then he goes on to say, God, you were too great for me to understand. You don't always understand. Who here always understands God? Sometimes you question and you search and you wonder. And at the end of the day, as it is at the end of the song, and yet I'm still with you. You know, this is echoed in Isaiah chapter 40, where it talks about the understanding of God is unfathomable. There's no depth, no bottom to it. That means God understands us more than we understand ourselves. He knows us inside and out. He knows why we do what we do. There are a bunch of us who have done stuff in the last week and we've gone, I don't even know, I don't even know why I did that. Why do I keep doing that? And God says, I know why you keep doing that. And I want you to turn to Christ. And the temptation we have is to pull back from God and not trust him. And he says, turn and trust me. Turn and trust me. Well, Deuteronomy 30, 15, 20. So thinking now, you know, about these nations and thinking about the evil that they choose to do and thinking about how if they turn to repent, it says God will relent from destroying them and he will raise them up. And then thinking about how God understands who we are and he has studied us and he's known us front and front to back and he understands us better than we understand ourselves. Then we see Deuteronomy. 
says this, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. So now God is speaking to his people that he has called the Israelites, and he's saying this to them. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and you shall become rulers. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Loving the Lord your God and obeying him and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what is God saying to us? He's saying, I've set before you good today, and I've set before you bad today. I've set before you the things that are evil today, and I've set before you the things that are godly and righteous and healthy today. And, and this is one of the things we always say, right? That God created us with the ability to make choices. Who here has ever, who, who here had a child? Who here had a child that was unable to choose to love you or hate you? Well, none of us had that child, otherwise they wouldn't be a child. We all had children that could make a choice to love us or hate us. Now, whether we feel we, we messed up enough that the kid hates us is another thing. What I've, what I've discovered over the years is every time I thought I messed up too bad, my kids would love me anyway. And my wife would work on me, and she would, and she would say, you know, we really want to forgive you. I can't believe that they, I don't want to forgive me. Yeah, but the kids ain't you. Kids want to forgive you. They want to love you. They want to have mom and dad. They, they want to do the things that are redemptive, right? These children uh, that we have been given. And so it is with God, you know. We have, we are the children of God, and we have been given a choice to make. God has set before us the healthy things and the unhealthy things. And we are free to choose those unhealthy things. But he warns us. He said there are consequences to your choices. If you turn away, if you are laying it straight about down to other gods. Now, you've got to understand this thing with the other god thing, right? The god that you worship is the god that you will get your strength from. So when Jesus talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, he talks about being in a relationship with this God who will pour the Holy Spirit into your life. If you reject that relationship, you cut yourself off from that source of strength. And then you go to another God, and that other God starts to pour his strength or its strength into you. You know, Jeremiah says this, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, you go to other gods, you worship these idols, and he said, yet they are not idols, they are demons. When we talk about losing our focus on Christ and choosing another god, we talk about touching demonic forces. And you better believe it, that the devil will pour his strength and his power into your life. But that power will destroy you. I ran into a lady last week. She came, uh, I was speaking on the beach in Saskatchewan. 
And she came and she sat for some prayer ministry afterwards and she was weeping. And she said to me, every time I try to give myself to Jesus, horrible, blasphemous voices in my head start up. I said, you're describing demonic influence. We can get rid of that right now. Do you want this? Yeah. Good. Are you ready to say yes to Jesus? I explained who Jesus was. She said yes. <clears throat> pray with me. And she began to pray. And we prayed this prayer. You all heard me say it, right? Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. You're the Son of God. You died to forgive my sins, rose from the dead, and gave eternal life. Right about there, she walked up and she couldn't say a prayer. Why not? Because the demon that was in her life was preventing her. Because it knew that the moment she repented, she would be free and it would have to go. And it didn't want to. But she had said she wanted to give her life to Jesus. That means she had a heart of repentance. Nothing can stand in the way of a heart of repentance. I spoke to the evil spirit. I said, I command you in the name of Jesus to let her speak. I said, finish the prayer with me. And she did. And we cast demons to your life. I got a text from her a few days ago saying, things have changed. Where do I go now? Go with Jesus. When you turn to another God, whatever God you turn to will pour itself into your life. That's what God is not saying. If you turn to another God, I'm going to be perpetually old man and I'm just swapping. That's not what God is saying. God is not like that. God is saying if you reject a connection with me, the power that your life was meant to hold, my power, my presence will not pour into your life anymore. These are huge choices, folks. These are huge choices. So he says, choose life. Behold, it has put before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life so that you and your descendants might live. I mean, these choices that we make, they, they, they reverberate down the generations for our children and our children's children. Choose life. God did not say to them, you're perfect. I want you to choose life so you can stay perfect. Instead, they, he dumps them sinners. He dumps them broken. Two years of sinners are broken. That's all of us, right? Choose life. In choosing life, what happens? He says, you will be loving God, obeying him, holding fast to him. That means life to you, like the days. When you hold fast to God, that means life to you. It's like being in the hospital. When you're hooked up to the IV and it's pouring blood into your arm and you need that transfusion, that connection to that IV is pouring life into you. That's what happens when we're in a relationship with God. He pours life into us. So then he goes on to Psalm 1. He says this, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season, and their leaves do not wither, and in all they do they prosper. But the wicked are not so, 
six months, she was ready, she was all set up for an abortion already. And I asked her, because she was a friend of mine, I said, what went wrong? And she said, I always wanted someone to love me. She said, I thought on the wedding night, the magic would be there. Who here ever experienced that on your wedding night, the magic wasn't there? Interesting statistic. The wedding night is one of the most traumatic melodies in anyone's life. doesn't usually fit the romance novel expectation, if you get what I'm saying. So, you know, this whole, you know, this, 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 this expectation thing, this selfishness, that is the definition of a wicked person. Some wicked people look really good. Some wicked people look really bad. But the commonality is selfishness. Don't follow the advice of the selfish. Or taking a path that sinners tread. What is a sinner? Okay, we've quoted this one before. Anyone know the definition of sin? Whatever is not of faith. Somebody said it. Good. Quote with me. Whatever is not a faith. Let's say it again. Whatever is not a faith is sin. Right. So wherever we decide, God, we won't trust you. You know, you think about that little toddler, terrible twos. What's wrong with the terrible two-year-old? They don't need us anymore. Get out of my face. And we have to wait till it's all over, till they pancake, till they make mistakes, so that we can come back in and help them, right? And then they go through it again at 12, and then they go through it again at 16, whatever. Right? 23? I don't know, I'm 59, and I think I'm still going through that. We that's what a sinner is. He says, don't follow the advice of the selfish, of the wicked. Don't take the path that those who do it their own way tread. You will never learn how to trust God while you're following such people. Instead, find the person that knows how to trust God, that exhibits the fruit of that trust, the peace and the joy, and the walk with Jesus, and learn from them. And he says, that person will delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he will meditate day and night. And that, that's really, you know, the reason for reading your Bible is to gain the kind of wisdom that you need. Well, final passage here. I know I'm skipping over so much, and I know you'd like me to go longer too, but I apologize. You're going to have to short it. Luke 14 says, Now large crowds were traveling with him. It's interesting, you know, these large crowds came from the nation of, uh, of Israel. And what the nation of Israel was known for at the time was a legalistic form of religion where everybody had to sort of carry their own weight, perform for God, and hopefully they'd get in at the end of the day. The groups of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had already pretty much trained the average Jewish person that there was no hope for them because they weren't a Pharisee and they weren't carrying the law. They weren't, they weren't carrying through on the rules of God well enough. So most of these people had no hope. And then Jesus comes along and he starts to preach a message of good news, a message of forgiveness, a message of God's mercy, a message of God's love, a message of how God wanted to be straight to these people that could not generate on their own. And so large crowds were traveling with him. And he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Who here? Who here? Ever struggled to wrap their head around that passage? 
You know, that, that passage drives me nuts because not too, not too far away from this passage, someone came to Jesus and said, what is the most important thing? And Jesus said, here is the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a bold attitude. It's like, love God with all your heart. That's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to love everybody around you, including your wife and your husband and your family and your neighbors. And, and here's Jesus. He said, no, no, no. unless you hate these people, you can't follow me. So I want you all to put up with the whole game show. That's the message of church this morning. Please, please, don't walk out of here and let that be the only thing you remember on Sunday, right? Our pastor said we should all go out and hate everybody. Oh my goodness, don't do it. No, God. But what he actually does, he's drawing a distinction between two ways. There's a way of walking following God, and there's a selfish way that the world says walk, and you cannot walk the whole. Who here has tried to walk both roads in your life? I did that. I remember when I was 18 and I, I said, oh man, we were we, we had a bunch of booze all stashed up. We were gonna have a heavy drink at supper, and we were we, we had a bunch of plans, and none of it was any less than selfish and wicked. And that summer, somebody took me to hear a friend of mine who had been touched by Jesus. And I said yes to Jesus. He touched my heart in a way that changed everything. But I remember coming out of that summer and I was determined I will not be that judgmental schmuck that follows Jesus and ditches my friends. I will keep my friends and I will follow Jesus at the same time. And I started on this road. It's too bad I'm wearing these robes because you don't get the illustrations on them, right? Here you go. I want you to watch the legs. I started walking the road. I'm walking both roads. One foot following Jesus, one foot following my friends. <laughs> Much more, something's gonna rip. <laughs> Can't be done. There came a point in time, and trust me, I put in the effort. There came a point in time when I had to make a choice, correct? I, in order to keep myself in one piece, I had to get off one road and follow the other road. I had to make a choice. And I was so determined, you know, you don't have to be a judgmental schmuck. You don't. You just have to follow Jesus. Now, some people will decide you're a judgmental schmuck because you don't follow their road anymore. But that's their issue. So Jesus, what Jesus is doing is highlighting this need to make a choice. You cannot not choose, because by not choosing, you've made a choice. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's this choice that we make, and it's a choice that we've been called to. And all through the scriptures that we have read today, this choice keeps standing up. I set before you today life and death. Blessing and cursing. Choose which will you follow. <coughs> Jesus said, Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me will not be my disciple. Do you remember what the cross is? You know, this is 
times that poor Jesus got put on the cross. The cross back in the day, you know, everybody walks around with little, little cross necklaces and all that kind of stuff. Back in the early days when Jesus was crucified, nobody would have ever worn a cross. A cross was such a shameful way to die that the early believers didn't even like to make reference to it, even with regard to Jesus. It took a couple hundred years for the cross to get sufficiently less shameful that people could openly talk about what happened. This cross thing, Jesus says you need to carry the cross. Well, the symbology of the cross is that you will lose your life, you will give up your life, you will die to something so that you can live to something else. It, it, it definitely isolates this choice idea that you will follow this direction and lose everything, or you will keep everything and follow this direction. What will you do? He says, if you're going to follow me, the only way to follow me is through the cross. You cannot learn be a disciple of Jesus outside the cross. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. And otherwise when he's laid a foundation is not able to finish all who see it will begin to ridicule him saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Who here has had that experience? You started something in your life. You were a young person. You were filled with zeal. Maybe, maybe some of it's, it's our marriages. And we, and we started something, and we couldn't carry it out. We didn't have what it took. For me, it was my ministry. I was idealistic. I started something, and I thought, I've got gifts, and I've got passion, and all that stuff. And that all ran out, and I couldn't carry it through on my own. Whatever your journey is, did you sit down before it and say, do I have the resources to do this? Therefore, Jesus says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. When we follow Christ, you, know, you think about that citadel. John is in the construction. Uh, he's helping me build the deck out, out back here. He's stacked up all the lumber. He's figured everything out, right? Uh, we have what it takes to finish the, finish the construction. Because that's what John does, right? So he's figured all this stuff out. It's not so easy to do that with regard to life. Do you have what it takes? When you're laid on your deathbed, will you be at peace? Or better yet, before your deathbed, when Jesus calls you to give up something so that you can go serve him, will you give it up? What is your choice? He says, no one can become my disciple. What is a disciple? Does anyone know what a disciple is? Okay, speak after me. A disciple is... A person who has learned the discipline of trust. Mothers, when you disciple your children, what do you do? You teach them to trust you. You teach them that mother will always be there for you. You teach them that any, anything you get into, you can count on mom will help you. And that child learns to trust you. Fathers, ideally, the same thing. That is what it means to be a disciple. Jesus says, nobody will learn to trust me. No one will learn to trust me. No one will learn to trust me except unless you give up everything that you have and you draw strength from and come and follow me. He's not saying you can't have money. He's not saying you can't have a car. But he's saying if that's what you depend on, you'll never really learn what it means to follow him until you trust him instead of that stuff. Does that make sense to you? 
So the choice that's been laid in front of us is the choice of death, selfishness, wickedness, self-dependence, independence, or is the choice of trust, of faith, of loving God, of trusting God, and in that place the promises we will see the hand of our God working in our life. Today, you know, as we uh, get ready to go into our communion time, um, I just I just wanted to walk through these passages because of the themes that were in them, and and I pray that God motivates us. I pray that each of us responds to the call to engage the cross, to give up the life that we had intended for ourselves and to put ourselves in his hands. What if, what would it look like if we let go of our agendas and surrender to his? Let's pray. God Almighty, we come before you in the power of the name of Jesus and we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the power of your word that calls us and draws us. Lord, as scripture says that you set before us choices. Lord, and they're choices that you don't even leave, leave us alone to, to make. You, you strengthen us. You call us. You convict us. But Lord, the choices are to let go of our demands, of our plans, of our lives. Lord, to turn back from the things that we have turned into idols and to come back to choose life. And so, Jesus, we come. By your power, by your spirit, will you convict each of us as we need to be convicted, Lord, of what, of, of what you want for us, of the choice that lays before us, of the idol that we may need to let go of, of the engagement with you that we may need to make. Father, if we live with a lie, that we can walk both roads, the selfish and the righteous. Strip that away by the power of the name of Jesus. So that we can follow you. Oh God, we pray. We pray for life transformation. And so we come to you to say we love you. And Father, as we come for communion today, we come to remember the Jesus who gave up his life on the cross, who lost everything in order to gain everything. And we ask that you would pour out in us the same spirit that was in him, the spirit that carried him to the cross, the spirit that took him through that experience, the spirit that raised him from the dead, your Holy Spirit. Fill us. Lord, in this time of communion, we come to bring who we are and surrender to you. That we may receive from 